How was everybody? Good. Hey, we had graduations this weekend, I think. Is there any graduates in the room? Any high school graduates? A couple of you. All right. All right. All right. The worst part of your life is done. It's a lot better from here on out. So just, just letting you know. <laughs> Whenever I have parents come up to me and they have middle schoolers, I always look at them. I'm like, this is the worst time of your life. Get through middle school. Everything is better, right? You don't know who the heck you are in middle school, do you? So it's like, just get past those years and everything is just glorious after that. So, hey, um, real quick, I wanted to, to tell you something and just kind of thank you a little bit. Um, every year, I've, I've, for the last four or five years, um, I've gotten to go up to New England and we work with three churches up there. And now we, I'll tell you about this in a second. We started picking up our fourth church, which is in Albany, New York, met the pastor there and just a great guy, great church, and they're really doing some neat stuff. But uh, we've been doing that for years now, and I take a team with me typically, and um, we do leadership training for all their volunteers, and we give them a bunch of curriculum, and we do just, we help them out financially, all that kind of stuff. And um, this year, I had to make it a really quick trip, and I um, just went up for a couple of days, and I brought Kyle with me, and we still did some leadership stuff and met with all the pastors, but I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to share something with you. First of all, all those churches have grown significantly. When I say significantly, the Northeast is a different world than the South. Uh, um, the, the four cities that we're working with are four of the top five least churched areas in the entire United States. And Burlington, Vermont ties with San Francisco for number one. It's about one to 2% Christian um, in that area. So there's virtually no Christians to speak of in that area. So those churches, though, have grown, but growth in that part of the country is different than growth here. This church grew 800 people in the first two months of the year. Those churches have been around longer, and most of them are about 120 people. And so, uh, but anyways, I'm talking to the pastor uh, from the Burlington Church. His name's Adam. He's an extremely humble, great guy. And um, we're sitting there talking. We were at a coffee shop, and, and we're about to leave. And he just gives me a big hug, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he's just a great guy. And he goes, um, Corey, uh, right before your, your church started getting involved with us and helping us financially and just being there for moral support because they're just alone up there, he said, we were thinking about throwing in the towel. We were thinking about being done and um, just doing something else or, or, or getting out of town. We were, just, we were just done. And he says, it was about that time that your church stepped in. And it wasn't the money as much as it was they know that they have a big church down in the South that prays for them and believes in them and wants them to succeed. And um, since that time, their church has doubled in size and they're reaching the city to the best of their ability. Yeah, it's great. And, um, but, but I wanna tell you guys, when you financially give to this church and when you pray for those churches, it's, it's, it's a big deal. I know you may never go to Burlington, Vermont, which you should. It's gorgeous up there. But anyways, I don't know if you're ever going to go to Vermont or if you're ever going to meet the pastors from that church, uh, City uh, Church at the Well, I'm sorry, is what the, what the name of the church is. Um, but you're blessing them, and it's making a difference. And so as your pastor, I wanted to tell you thank you. If you contribute, that money is going to good stuff, and we just want to say uh, thank you, and it's such an honor that we get to work with them. So um, anyways, we are in the book of Acts. We've been in it for like a million years or something like that, um, and we're, we're getting close to the end, and we're in chapter 24 this week, and uh, of course, we were in chapter 23 last week, and if you haven't been here, let me catch you up very, very quickly. We've been following Paul. Paul has been all over the Mediterranean and modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece for years and years and years, starting churches, teaching not just Jewish people, 
but non-Jewish people, which was a big deal, about Jesus Christ. Built a lot of churches, built a lot of communities around Christ, done a lot of awesome stuff. He gets back to Jerusalem after his third trip and does not receive a very warm welcome. So not only do the Christians in Jerusalem, they're kind of cold to him and make him jump through some hoops, the non-believing Jews start a riot over Paul, try to rip him to shreds. The Roman government gets involved. They're about to beat him, and they find out that he's a Roman citizen, and everything kind of changes. So it was against the law to beat a Roman citizen. And so they take him, and they take Paul in front of the Sanhedrin to kind of figure out what to do, and that gets out of control, and there's a plot to assassinate Paul by the religious people, which is crazy, right? So a guy named Claudius Lysias, a Roman commander, decides to take Paul out of Jerusalem and send him to an area about 60 miles away called Caesarea. And so he's going to take him out of Jerusalem, put him in Caesarea for his protection, and also so he can meet the governor, Felix, and get a trial. They can figure out what to do with Paul. That's kind of where we left off. Last week, though, here's what we talked about. There's a letter in chapter 23 from a Roman commander, Claudius, who says virtually Paul is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. Nothing worth throwing him in jail, let alone killing him. He's an innocent man. That was written from one Roman to another Roman, Governor Felix. So we establish in 23, Paul has done nothing wrong, but he has been treated unfairly. He has been accused. He has been treated like he is a guilty man. So we asked ourselves last week, in those times when we are being treated unfairly, in those times when we are being mistreated or talked bad about or slandered or whatever the case may be, in those times, how do we handle it and do we trust God? Do we trust that God is going to work it out? This week, we're going to talk about this, and this will make sense at the end. We're going to ask ourselves, when it comes to our relationship with God, our personal relationship with Jesus, are we selfish in how we view that relationship? Is it about us, right? That's what we're going to ask, and we'll get to that here at the end, okay? So that'll make sense towards the end of it. So if you have a notes handout when you walked in, everyone should have got got one of those. It has everything I'm going to say, and that notes handout will be up on the screen. If you have the Experience Community app, which is free, of course, I think like 3,000 people have downloaded that, which is really cool. But if you click on service time and sermon notes, everything is there, very, very convenient. If you have a Bible, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament, the 24th chapter, we're going to do the whole thing. It's very, very short, okay? All right, so we should be good to go. Everyone's good. The rain's held off a little bit longer, which is awesome, right? So... It's really depressing when you look at the weather app, isn't it? And you're like, it's sunny on Saturday, and for the next 19 days, it's going to be thunderstorms. And you're like, it's a little frustrating, isn't it? But all right, let's pray. Let's jump into this, and um, let's see where the Lord takes us, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we want to tell you thank you, Lord. We are so blessed, God. Um, We live in a wonderful nation. Um, Lord, we have such wonderful freedoms, God, and we thank you for that, the, the ability to do what we're doing right now. Father, Lord, we pray that you bless our brothers and sisters up in New England that we work with. Pray, Lord God, that you bless all the churches in our great city, Lord, that are are teaching the word, God. Pray, Lord, that you bless all the great nonprofits in our city. Pray, Father, that you open up our eyes and our ears and that we understand you better and that you encourage us today. And Lord, we just pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you, that something spoken today may uh, uh, stir their imagination or stir their curiosity and uh, 
and maybe, God, that they'll seek you out further. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, God. Keep your hand on us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 24. I'm going to read a little bit, then we'll break it down. So five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, this is to the judge, we enjoy great peace because of you and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix with the utmost gratitude. But so that I will not be a burden to you any further, I request that you be kind enough to give us a brief hearing, for we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. This is the opening statement of the prosecution. Think of a courtroom setting, right? The lawyer comes in, he's going to open up his case, and this is what we just read. So Paul had been in prison in Caesarea for about five days. He was waiting for the people who had accusations against him to get to the area. After they showed up, the, 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 the lawyer walks in, right? And he starts to plead his case. Now, the custom of that day, which is still kind of the custom of today when it comes to lawyers, is they come in, no offense if you're a lawyer in here, they praise the judge and they promise to make the case very, very brief. Tertullus, we see him, he's really buttering Felix up, right? Oh, wonderful Felix, you've done all these wonderful things and we don't wanna take too much of your time, so let's quickly get through this trial and we'll plead our case and very much buttering this governor up. Now, here's what's interesting about that. This governor was a terrible governor. When you go back and study history, there was nothing about Felix that was worthy of praise. This lawyer says all these flattering things, but history tells us that Felix's reign as a governor was awful. There was anarchy, there was insurrections, there was no reforms recorded in history. It's funny, the lawyer says all these great reforms that help our nation. There was no reforms during the time of Felix, during his tenure. So here's the other thing. The Jews actually hated Felix. So this lawyer's buttering him up and all the Jews are probably like biting their tongues, right? They hated this guy, but they hated Paul more. So they wanted to butter up this governor because they hated Paul even more than they hated the Roman gov government and hated this Roman governor. So that's what they're doing. So what we learn from that is something that we should all know. This is not the way the Christian does things. We don't have selfish ambition. We don't manipulate and we don't butter people up that we hate in order to get things that we want. This is just not the way we do things. But if we are not careful, if we don't have a tight connection with God, and if we let bitterness or selfish ambition or, or hatred take root in us, we can act like this lawyer. We can lie our way to success and we can manipulate people and cheat people and say things that are not correct, and we can slip into some very dangerous behaviors 
if we are not tightly tethered to Jesus Christ, just like this lawyer was doing. And so the case against Paul was essentially that Paul was upsetting the Pax Romana. If you've been coming to church any length of time here, you've heard me say this phrase, Pax Romana. If you haven't, all that means is the peace of Rome. This man was upsetting the tranquility of the Roman Empire. So Paul was accused of political sedition, a lot like what Jesus was accused of. But they took it even further with Paul. I love this. The lawyer says, every single Jew on planet earth has been upset by Paul. Now that's just crazy, right? He says, everyone in the Roman world hates this guy, Paul. So he exaggerates and claims that Paul is essentially like this global terrorist, you know? The other accusation he makes is he says, Paul is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, when you use the word sect, that's usually kind of connected loosely to a cult. And so this lawyer says, this guy, Paul, is in charge of this cult that worships a dead guy that they say has risen from the grave from an area called Nazareth. Now, the reason he said sect and Nazarene is because sects were looked at unfavorably, and so were people from Nazareth. In fact, I think it says in the book of John, facetiously, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So not only were they a cult, they were worshiping a guy from an area that no one wants to go to. That's what the lawyer was trying to paint here. Tertullus goes on to the main offense, though. The main offense is this. Tertullus says, Paul tried to desecrate our temple. Now, wait a second. We see a problem with this lawyer right here. Earlier on in Acts, it said that Paul did desecrate, that he brought a non-Jew into the temple. Now the story has changed. The lawyer says, well, he tried to, but we stopped him. We apprehended him. So we see kind of a breakdown. But here's what's interesting. At the end of this part of the passage, it says that all the Jews that accused Paul were on the same page. They had gotten together. They had rehearsed their story, regardless if it were lies or not. And they came in saying the exact same thing. That's what they do in court most of the time. Now, if you have a Bible, if you look at your Bible, depending on the translation you have, most of your translations will not have verse 7 and 8. Did you notice that when you were reading it? It goes from 6 to 9, most of your translations. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your Bible. They didn't forget anything. Different translations of the Bible are based on different manuscripts that have been found over the last century. Some of them from an older manuscript, some of them from a newer manuscript that was found that was more complete. So like if you have a King James Version Bible, there will be some added scriptures. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your King James Version Bible, but newer translations like the ESV or the CSB or the NLT, different ones like that, omit certain passages because more complete manuscripts were found. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the Word of God. It doesn't mean that things have been changed. Nothing major has happened that, it, that changes the complete idea of the Bible, but there are some narrative shifts that commentators have removed, okay? All right. So when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will also be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul says, I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. And after many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd, without an uproar. It is they who ought to be here bringing charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement that I shouted while standing among them, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. So the prosecution gives their opening argument, and now Paul gives his opening argument. Paul also opens up with respect and honor because that's the kind of man that Paul was. He opens up with a formal intro. Here's the thing, though. He doesn't flatter. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't tell any lies. He just says, Felix, I know you've been in this area as a judge for a long time, right? And so what what Paul does is he starts to defend himself, is he just wants to look at the facts. Let's look at the facts. And Paul says the accusations that these people are making don't line up with the timeline Paul says, it's only been 12 days since I've been in Israel, and they're accusing me of all these things. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So Paul doesn't lose his cool, right? He doesn't try to use a bunch of eloquent words. He just wants to point out to the governor that he has kept his nose clean. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, Paul says, I didn't even come to Jerusalem to talk about Jesus, I came to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. I came to Jerusalem to see my friends in the church here, but I haven't done anything wrong. Now, this is what this brings us to. It brings us to a biblical principle that Paul actually wrote in 1 Timothy, that we are to live above reproach. What that means is, if we live a life to where it makes it difficult to accuse us of wrongdoing, this is gonna be groundbreaking, we're gonna be accused of doing wrongdoing less. Let me give you an example. So if I happen to have insomnia one night, right? I'm driving my old car through the square or something because I gotta get out of my house and I see you stumbling out of Whiskey Dicks at two in the morning. I'm going to assume that you're drunk. That's a bar, you can't walk straight, it's late at night, one plus one equals two, right? I assume that you've had too much to drink. Now, if I approach you the next weekend and I'm like, hey, I was driving around one night because I had insomnia, saw you stumbling out of a bar, you okay? And you're like, oh, how dare you judge me? I dare to judge you because you placed yourself in a position to be judged. And so if you don't stumble out of a bar at two o'clock in the morning, I probably won't assume that you have a drinking problem. You're living above reproach, right? So if I see you driving around, we're talking common sense today, if that's all right with everybody. So if you're driving around, you're a woman and you're driving around with like 
I don't know, a guy that looks like a male model all the time in your car around town and you're married, I'm going to assume that you're not doing something right in your marriage. So I'm probably going to stop you and say, hey, can you tell me about the dude that's not your husband that's in your car? How dare you judge me, Corey? What is this judgmental church that I'm in? No, 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 no. I care for you. I care about your marriage. And if you don't want me to be concerned, live in a way that doesn't give me concern. This is common sense. And this is what the Bible tells us. Live in a way that is above reproach. Live in a way that is clean, where our conscience is clean, and people, it's difficult for them to make accusations about us, okay? All right. So Paul also wanted to establish that he wasn't brought to to trial for political reasons. It's already been established. He didn't break any Roman laws. He didn't break any Jewish laws. Paul wanted to say, I am here for spiritual reasons. They have a problem with my theology. They have a problem with my religious beliefs. So Paul states what his religious beliefs are. He says, I worship the same God they do, but I worship God through Jesus Christ, the way. He also says, I believe in the Old Testament. Paul says, man, all the scripture that they hold on to about the prophets and the law, I'm down with that. I believe in the same thing. And then Paul says, just like a lot of these Pharisees that are accusing me, I believe in the resurrection. I believe one day we will have an afterlife. So he states his theology for the governor. And as he's stating his theology, he says, governor, I have always worked very hard to have a clear conscience. So Paul switches from defense to kind of an offense. He's now sharing what Jesus Christ has done in his life. And he says, look, governor, the whole reason I even came to Israel was to bring money for the poor. I collected money from these other churches to help out my Jewish brothers and sisters here who are struggling financially. So he starts witnessing about the great things that God has done through him. Now, here's what's fascinating, guys. Paul is winning. He is winning this trial. And he kind of starts to to, to put the nail in the coffin when he says, governor, ask these men to state for me what I have done wrong, what laws I have broken. And then he starts talking more about his theological beliefs, about the resurrection. So the truth was winning. Paul was winning this conversation. Paul once again points to his, his theology and his belief. And he says, basically, this is the only thing they have against me is we have some different spiritual beliefs. And so he says, I've been falsely accused by these people, all right? So the governor has heard both sides. Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom and not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him money. So he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Porcius 
Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix wanted to do a favor for the Jews, so he left Paul in prison. Now, here's what's interesting. We get no verdict. He's not innocent. He's not guilty. After both sides are heard, Felix adjourned everyone, said, okay, everyone can go home, and I'll decide this case when Lysias gets here. Lysias is never going to come. Lysias already said in chapter 23, he thinks Paul is innocent. So what has happened here is in the meantime, which there is no definitive meantime, Paul was going to be on house arrest. This leads me to believe that Felix thought Paul was innocent, but he didn't want to upset the Jews. So he said, hey, you're going to be on house arrest. It's kind of light arrest, you know, like your friends can come by and hang out with you. Like you got a lot of freedom, but you have to stay in this spot. That's what they did to Paul. And then it says several days later, Felix showed up to talk to Paul. Now, this is interesting. Felix and his wife, who was a Jewish woman, came and they wanted to hear Paul talk about Christ Jesus is what the scripture says. Now, at first glance, we're like, oh, cool. This dirty politician is going to have a change of heart and become a Christian. Or if it's not him, maybe his wife is feeling convicted because of her Jewish roots that she is feeling convicted about Jesus. Whether it's option A or option B, whichever one it might have been, it didn't last very long, right? And the way we know that is it says that they got afraid and they left. So here's what's interesting. Guys, this is probably the most important slide we'll talk about today, by the way. If you were sleeping and on, or, or on Facebook, pay attention just for like three minutes, all right? So some people wanted to hear the truth. Now, here's what's interesting. Felix and his wife wanted to hear about Jesus. Tell me about this loving, gracious God that would sacrifice himself for his people. I want to hear about that. But when Paul got into the, the, the deep parts of the Christian faith, when he started talking about that we must live righteously, that there must be self-control, that we will have judgment against us one day, Felix was out. He didn't want that. He wanted this lovey-dovey Jesus, right? That it's all about blessings and good things and it's love and Papa Daddy, all this stuff. Like that's what the, the Jesus he wanted. But when it came to the hard things about the faith, he didn't want that. Now, this is what we do, right? In modern North American Christianity, this is so us. We love to talk about love and we love to talk about blessings and we love kind of all the like snuggly, like flowery stuff about our faith. But whenever you start getting into the word and it starts talking about self-control, oh, wait a second. I can't get drunk all the time? Wait a second. Whenever we start getting into things like discipline, wait a second, I have to have boundaries. I have to live a certain kind of life to honor God. When we start talking about accountability and judgment, right? that God is not only a loving God, but a righteous judge. When we start getting into that stuff, we don't want to talk about that. We want to move away from that. We kind of want this hippie herbal tea kind of Jesus. <laughs> right? That when we look at porn, Jesus is like, I don't see you. You know, like, that's not the way Christ works. He sees everything about you. And there is accountability. And there is self-control. And there is discipline. And there is one day going to be judgment if we don't live a life of repentance. These things are facts in the same book that tells us how much Jesus loves us. There are multiple facets of our God. And when it gets to that part, a lot of us don't like that and we move on. Another thing I find interesting about Felix is this. He walks away from Paul and he says, okay, okay, that's too much for me to handle right now, but when I need you, I'll call you, right? 
He became afraid when it started talking about, when, when Paul started talking about what the Christian life looks like, he said, but I don't want all that. And so because of the fear of following Christ, Felix goes right back into the things that he knows, right back into the things that he's comfortable with. So after hearing that following Jesus takes work, it says that Felix wanted to get bribes from Paul. And so he started calling on Paul, not for religious things. Look at this symbolism here. He started calling on the man of God, not because he wanted God, but because he wanted blessings. He wanted financial blessings. This is what we do to God again. God, I don't want all this sacrifice relationship stuff, but when I need you, I'll give you a buzz, right? When times get tough, God, I'll pray a little bit. When I'm broke, I'm gonna ask for money, right? So this is how we treat the Lord, just like Felix was treating Paul. And so Felix could have let Paul go. He was an innocent man. Everyone knew he was an innocent man. He could have acquitted him. He could have let him go. But this would have been political suicide for this guy. It would have been political suicide for Felix. So instead of making a decision, Felix just kind of runs out the clock. He eventually transfers him over to a guy named Porcius and says, hey, he's your problem now. And Paul spends two years in prison. He's innocent. Again, when you read that, you're like, man, that sucks. That's not fair. That's not right. Here's how God works, though. In that two-year span, most theologians believe that's when the book of Acts was written. What happened was Paul was confined to one space with a lot of liberties, and a young man named Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, hung out with Paul a lot during that two years, and more than likely, Luke recorded the entire book of Acts on his MacBook Pro, right? That's why I'm doing this, right? <laughs> probably wasn't like this. It's probably more like that. But isn't it fascinating that we look and we're just like, man, he's on house arrest. And that's why we have the book of Acts that we've been studying for all these months. Fascinating, isn't it? So here's the thing. I'm going to hang on this guy Felix for a second. So I'm studying and I'm working on this as I'm up in New England, and, and I learned on this trip that I wake up a lot earlier than Kyle Elkins. But anyways, <laughs> so uh, I would go downstairs super early and, and work on my lesson at this little cafe thing. And anyways, I started thinking about this guy Felix a lot. And it is easy. I'm going to use me. I'm not even going to use you. It's very easy for me to demonize this guy. Listen, not only did this guy get to hear the gospel, he got to hear the gospel from a man that contributed more to the Holy Bible than any other one person. Paul. He sat there with Paul and heard the gospel. So it's easy for me to look at Felix and be like, you're an idiot. You know, like, you, you hear the truth, even the difficult side of it, but, but you walk away from the truth. We can also look at Felix and say, man, not only did you walk away from the truth, you went right back to corruption. You went right back to bribery. You went back to what was comfortable for you after hearing the truth from one of the most important men of God that's ever lived. And so here's the thing, though. After thinking about this lesson a lot, this is what we do. How often do we hear the truth and walk away because we just don't want to do all the hard work? How often do we hear the truth? How often are we, we put into a situation how often do we, do we face these things and walk away from it? Now, here's what we typically do. You and I love the heck out of Jesus when a relationship with Jesus is easy. 
We love the church. We love being a Christian all day long as long as it does not interrupt our busy schedules, right? We love Jesus until it's travel baseball season and that gets in the way of church, right? Because it's more important that your guys, just bear with me for a second. It's more important that your kids are good baseball players than they know the word of God because baseball is gonna save their soul. Look, I love baseball. I'm from St. Louis, right? Greatest team in the history of baseball, right? So love St. Louis. But the St. Louis Cardinals can't save your soul. If your son or daughter becomes the best baseball player or softball player in the world, that's not gonna save them. Invest in something better. Not against your kids playing sports. I'm up in New England and, and they say, you know, especially like in the Massachusetts area, because there's more universities in Massachusetts than any other state. When summer comes along, their attendance really dips. And they asked me, he said, does your, does your attendance really dip in the summer? And I was like, not really. I said, my attendance tends to dip in the fall. And they said, well, why? And I said, we have this other religion called the SEC. You know what's fascinating about our church? We do four services on two days. Guys, let me blow you. Don't let brains get on the person next to you when I tell you this and your head explodes. If the game is on Saturday, get this. You can come on Sunday. Listen, wait, hold on. If the game is on Sunday, look, put your seatbelts on. You can come on Saturday. <laughs> right? So whenever people are like, well, the Predators played on Saturday, I'm like, man, isn't that great? We have two services on Sunday, <laughs> two, four options, right? That you can get plugged in in some way. So whenever our schedule gets interrupted by our relationship with Jesus, whenever it's not easy, whenever we have to lay things down, whenever Christ calls us to make some sacrifices, we either manipulate the scripture. Well, does the Bible really say we have to go to church to be a Christian? Yes, in Hebrews it does. It says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as many people are doing. That's what the Bible says. Well, does the scripture really say that I can't have sex with my boyfriend before marriage? We're married in the eyes of God. No, you're not. You're sinning, right? So you need to do the right thing and change your lifestyle to fit the word of God. And so oftentimes we either manipulate the scripture or we just say, nope, I don't want to do this. It doesn't fit with me. It doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for you, but not for me. Because the truth is relative, right? That's facetious. So here's the thing, guys. I think we often manipulate, we often walk away or push away from these things because I don't think that we truly understand who our Father is. Listen, you may go through times of discipline, you may go through times of sacrifice and you may be held accountable by me or by someone else, by God. Do you know the Bible says that God disciplines us because he loves us? Just like you discipline your kids because you want them to be better. Here is our problem when we get to the tough parts of the word of God or the tough parts of our faith, accountability, sacrifice, discipline. We fail to understand that God does everything he does to us because he wants us to be better. Everything that happens to us in our life. Romans 8 says, even the bad things that we're the ones responsible for, that if we will be humble, if we will be repentant, God works out all things for the good of those that love him. 
So in those times of hardship and sacrifice and discipline and accountability and even judgment, in those times when it's tough to live out our faith, it's not because God doesn't love you. God is the master artist. And the Bible alludes to us being clay in his hands. And sometimes the artist has to pound the clay. Sometimes he has to stretch the clay. Sometimes he has to heat it up and he has to make it malleable and he has to push it in his hands. He has to do all these things. And sometimes that hurts, but it's not because God hates you. It's because God wants to make you into a beautiful piece of art. God wants to make you into something greater than you are right now. And the only way the Bible says to refine pure gold is to put it through heat, to turn up the heat. And we often look at these times in our lives when we're going through hardships and sacrifices and discipline, and we look at those and we hate those days. But those, day, those days are so necessary because it's through the heat, it's through the stretching, it's through the pounding, it's through those times that we come out better on the other side. If your marriage is falling apart, you don't go find a couple that's been married for three months, hey, tell me what to do. You go and find one of those old couples that have battle wounds from 35 years of marriage or 40 years of marriage, and they can tell you about the times when they almost got divorced, but they pushed through. That's the kind of couple you go to. They have wounds, they have scars, they have stories to tell. God has put them through the ringer, or maybe they have put themselves through the ringer, but because they love the Lord, God worked out those mistakes even for their benefit. And if we know that God loves us, we go through the fires of life, not shaking our fist at the Lord, but saying, God, what are you doing to me right now? In what way are you trying to make me better? And here's what God does through life. God puts us through these refining fires. He stretches us and molds us. Sometimes with clay, you even have to break it and build it back up. And God does that because one day he's gonna come back, he's gonna be finished with us, not in a bad way, but he's going to perfect us. And at that point when he perfects us, he's gonna say, now that you're perfect, you can live with me because I'm perfect. Come on. And we live with Christ forever, completed, masterful pieces of art, living with the creator forever in perfection. God is doing something with you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you can feel the heat. I don't know if you have made some dumb decisions and you're paying the price for it, but I know this. God works out all things for the benefit of those that love him. Romans chapter eight. And if we will be humble, if we will look at the creator and say, God mold me, God will make you into something absolutely fabulous. And one day he will make you into something that is perfect and you will get to live with Christ forever. Don't despise the days when you're going through the ringer. God is gonna make you into something better. God's gonna make you into something great. Sacrifice, discipline, self-control, hard work, accountability, those aren't bad things. Those make us into what God wants us to be. Did you bow your heads with me? Got a little Pentecostal with you guys there at the end. So, yeah. <laughs> Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I don't, I, I think I've said this three weeks in a row. I do not know what you're going through. Man, some of you guys, you may have the heat turned on you like you have never felt before. Man, some of you guys may feel beat up. You may feel stretched. 
you may feel broken. Here's my challenge to you. Humble yourself. Say, God, I just need you to shape me into whatever you want me to be. God, I trust you. I love you. I know you're the artist. I'm just the clay. Make me into something fantastic. Maybe you need to apologize to people maybe you've done something wrong to or maybe you need to repent before God. But if you'll just humble yourself, trust the Lord. Hey, listen, there's people up here at the front on the right and left. If you're in this room and you've never given your life to Christ or if you are in this room and you want to pray about something or if you're going through a hard time, let some of these men and women pray for you. If you have any questions about a relationship with Jesus, let these people pray with you and maybe give you some answers. If you're in this room and you have forgotten that God loves you, if you have forgotten that God works out for the good of those that, that love him, all things, if you've forgotten that, there is communion all the way around you at a table where there's a lamp. That communion represents the God that loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that if we will believe in him, we will have everlasting life. I love you. I don't love you enough to give you my child. God loves us so much that he let his only son be sacrificed for us. That's how much he loves you. And he wants the best for you. But to get there, it may be hard. But that's okay. Lord Jesus, God, for all my brothers and sisters in this room, bless them wherever they are at right now. Whatever they're going through in life, whatever trials or temptations or struggles or frustrations or mistakes or whatever may have happened, God, Lord, let them put their hope and trust in you. God, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know who you are, if they don't have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray, God, that they would maybe come to the front and ask some questions or set up a meeting time with one of us and that they would just be intrigued and, and reach out, God. Lord, we thank you for your son that died on the cross. Thank you for his body and blood that was shed for us, Lord. We thank you for your word that instructs us and gives us encouragement and edification. And Lord, I pray blessings over everyone in this room. God, you are good. And we thank you for your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.